take your Bible, if you would, open it to the Gospel of Mark, second of the Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're doing a cure for a blind and dying nation, part two, as we looked at the healing of blind Bartimaeus last Sunday and the, call it the symbolic meaning behind the healing, pointing to a nation that was largely blind, a nation that needed an eye-opening experience but a nation that scarcely saw with their eyes or heard with their ears. And Jesus quoting the book of Isaiah, saying, if they would return with their heart, I would heal them. The ultimate healing that um, Jesus came to bring was not a political healing. Uh, In fact, uh, there were many people who mistook his ride into Jerusalem just uh, in just that way. He had come to bring a spiritual healing, a healing for the heart. Whenever anything's happened in our nation, you know, that is an issue, a problem, whether it's a shooting or a terrorist attack or something of that nature, we've asked some questions and we've heard people comment on the solutions. And people talk about gun control and they talk about, you know, education. They talk about, uh, you know, all these different reasons why we have the problems we have. And I'm not going to brush aside that some of those could be problems. But I am going to say that the church really, um, whenever it's been right, has always been preaching a spiritual cure at the heart. And, you know, Jesus said, if you would seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these other things would be added unto us. And we always seem to flip it around, and the Jewish nation flipped it around as well. They, They saw Jesus as a political deliverer, They were hoping that he would come and conquer Rome, but that's not what he came to do. He came to conquer sin and bring life to us. And and he was on this journey to Jerusalem. He he had told the disciples, I'm going to die. They're going to mock me. They're going to scourge me. They're going to spit upon me. They're going to crucify me. And, And I think the disciples could not see it. And part of the reason that they could not see it is because they had presuppositions that had formed in their hearts that made it almost impossible for them to see the truth. I want to tell you that there's something that uh, is very human about that. We can tend to see things through the lens that we want to see them. We can tend to take world events or even our own spiritual experience and kind of shove it down this particular uh, pipe or direction so we see it the way we want to see it instead of the way God wants us to see it. And so you say, well, Pastor Michael, what is the cure for something like that? You know, well, you guys have been hearing about a biblical worldview. And in order for us to funnel things properly, we have to have a biblical worldview. We have to see things the way God sees them. We have to have his eyes and his heart. So let's pray just for that as we get into this message. Father, we thank you so much for the people that have gathered on this Sunday morning, and we do desire to see the cure uh, for our nation, a nation that we have been blessed to live in, a nation that we love, and we're going to draw some parallels between Israel and the U.S., but we're going to be careful to say that the U.S. is not Israel, but there are certainly parallels, Lord, and uh, we just want to pray for illumination, Lord. We want to pray for understanding. We pray that your voice would be heard. We pray that we would set aside Um, Any of the things that we've brought into this place that are not beneficial for us, Lord. Any weights, um, even sin that we've brought into this place, Lord. Forgive us for our sin. Forgive us for uh, things that we do that are not pleasing to you, Lord. Uh, Make us clean. You know, David prayed that he wanted to have clean hands and a pure heart, Lord. Those would be the people that ascend thy holy hill and None of us have that, Lord, but you came to provide that through your death on the cross and your resurrection. So I pray you just bless this time. I pray you'd speak to us. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. The Cure for a Blind and Dying Nation, Part 2. So Jesus is about to ride into Jerusalem on what we would call Palm Sunday. So we're going to do Palm Sunday in October. Or what's known as his triumphal entry, or what's known as his, by some scholars, as his coronation as king. He will be crowned during this week, 
but not in a way that we would imagine. He will wear a, 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 a crown of thorns and he will die for the sins of the nation and, of course, for the sins of all people. Jesus had been telling his apostles in Mark 10, 45, if you want to take a peek at that, as they continued to be selfish and self-centered, he said, even Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man, that's Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. On our radio broadcast a couple days ago, I said that I was going to talk to us about principles about leaders so that we can make an informed choice about leadership. And you might be surprised that the Bible has a lot to say about leadership outside the church. In fact, God has a lot to say about three spheres of life, all of which he created. God created the family in Genesis chapter 2. He created government as the Bible unfolds, and he created the church. All three spheres of life are by God. They are his idea And when they're done right, they are God-honoring. And God has a lot to say about leadership in all three spheres of life. In the family, he has something to say. And Joshua probably put it best when he said, I don't care who else worships, what other gods, whatever you're going to do. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's what it means to be a godly leader of your household. Um, if you look at government, God goes on and on through the books of First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, the Proverbs, and he talks about godly leadership. In Proverbs 29, he talks about when the righteous are ruling, the people rejoice, and when the ungodly are ruling, the people groan. That's Proverbs 29.2. And God uh, laid out the demands of godly leadership. He told the king to read the law of God. He told the king to to lead righteously the people. Righteous kings were known for bringing the nation back to the Bible and knocking down or destroying the high places and the places for the false gods. And that was really how God defined godly leadership in government. There were many godly people who were prophets and kings who had great influences on nations. Esther, Daniel. Uh, and we could name many others, Nehemiah. And so God has a lot to say about that sphere of life as well. And of course, we know the passages that talk about uh, biblical leadership, 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1, the qualifications of an elder. God has spoken in all three areas. Now, as I looked at this message for this coming week, I was thinking, well, we should be tying parallels so that we can know how to choose a godly leader, because there's much confusion uh, on the landscape. But it struck me that there's another application that we need to make, and it's not just about our government leaders. It's about us. Because every time I look at the Bible, and I decide I want to point my finger at other people and tell everybody else what they're doing wrong, I know I'm in trouble. Because I know God... When I come to the Bible, wants me to search my own heart. I know that he wants me to take a look at how I'm serving others, how I'm being a change agent in my culture, how I'm being salt and light in my sphere of influence. And we could sit here all day long and complain about our leaders, and we have a right, I think, based upon what I see on the landscape, there's much to be leveled against our so-called leaders, But I still think that God's going to ask us to look at ourselves. I think that oftentimes, and I'm not saying that this is always true, but I think it's been well said that leaders are a reflection of a culture. And I don't know how we got here, frankly. I wonder how we got here. But I know some of the reasons we got here. One, One of the reasons is passivity. The church has been passive. And instead of being a loud voice in the culture, not an obnoxious voice, but a loud voice for righteousness and things that really matter, we've been largely silent. Let's face the facts. We've cloistered in buildings instead of being out there in the communities. And perhaps that's part of the problem. You know, Shane was talking about how often Christians can be even ashamed to name Jesus Christ at work or in a debate with a family member? How are we going to change the culture if we can't even speak on those levels? 
And you know what? I'm not preaching down at us now. I'm speaking to myself as well. For some reason, we can easily hold back what we say we believe, what we say is the foundation of our lives. For what? So that someone might like us or think that we're cool. And I told you last week that the country was not ashamed despite its imperfect people at the founding and the problems that were there. The country was not ashamed to say that if this is going to work, if America is going to work, it's going to work because it's a people that are governed ultimately by the higher values of Scripture. Now we have a divided nation. You know, just go on a website and look at the commentary of things where there's, uh, you know, people who are spewing all kinds of hate against the God of the Bible. There's people who have all these different takes. Everybody seems to have a take in our nation now. And when a, when a nation's uh, foundations are destroyed, we get in trouble. I want to take you to a few psalms before we even go into Mark 11. And we may have to do this message in a couple parts as well. <laughs> Turn to the book of Psalms, if you would. The psalms are a wonderful medicine for the soul. I'm going to start us in Psalm 2, and then we'll move over to Psalm 11. So the first one is Psalm 2. This is a prophecy that actually is picked up in the New Testament, and it is about Jesus, and here's what it says. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together, Psalm 2, 2, against the Lord and against his anointed. Here's what they say, Psalm 2, 3. Let us tear their fetters apart, Cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. If you want to know what makes God laugh, it's when people start to say, we'll get rid of God. That makes God chuckle because it's his world and his universe. So he who is in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. It says, then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, this is the father speaking to the son, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, and we might add, O presidents, Show discernment, take warning, O judges of the earth, worship the Lord with reverence, and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Turn to Psalm 11. Some of you have may have seen my title, and you might be wondering, is Pastor Michael prognosticating about the U.S.? No, I'm not. What I'm really referring to in this message is that Israel would see its own demise in 40 years from the time that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. 40 years rings a bell to many of us because that's what people say typically is a biblical generation, give or take. Some scholars believe he died in 30. Some people believe he died in 32 or 33 AD. Whatever the date may be, it was about 40 years until Israel fell to the ground and Jesus was pleading with the nation. He was telling the nation to turn back. And let me just tell you that this has connections to the Old Testament where prophets would go to wicked kings and say, turn because God is going to judge the nation. Turn, turn, turn. And when a king turned, even the case of wicked Ahab, God said, I'm not going to destroy that area in his generation because he repented. God even says of Ahab, the wicked king that was married to Jezebel, do you see how Ahab has responded? He's actually humbled himself, so I'm not going to destroy uh, the area in his generation. God does respond to humility, even humility from a wicked king. This is the pattern that's happened throughout the Bible. How it applies in New Testament times, I leave it to you. But Israel basically was on the clock. They had 40 years or less until their whole nation would fall. Jesus, when he rode into Jerusalem, wept over the city. He said, this is the city that kills prophets. This is the city that won't respond to God. 
And he said, if you had only recognized the time of your visitation, if your eyes had only been open to the truth, but now it's past. Jesus was heading to the cross. The people were lauding him, calling him the one who is blessed, who comes in the name of the Lord. And yet Jesus saw something much deeper than the people would see. Now, in Psalm 11, uh, I'll take you back. Uh, let's go to Psalm 10, verse 16. It says, The Lord is king forever and ever. Psalm 10, 16. Nations have perished from his land. O Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. Psalm 10, 17. Thou wilt strengthen their heart. Thou wilt incline thine ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed, that man who is on the earth may cause terror no more. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? In the Lord I take refuge. Can I paraphrase? How can I say to myself, I'm going to run away? How could I say to myself, I'm going to run away when things get difficult? I'm going to go hide up on some mountain. I'm going to flee like a little bird. No, this is not a time to flee. This is a time to stand. For behold, the wicked bend a bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. Sometimes it feels like that, doesn't it? It feels like the upright are getting shot at all the time while the culture calls what is evil good and what is good evil. If the foundations are destroyed, verse 3, Psalm 11, what can the righteous do? You know, you may want to mark that because <laughs> that's often how it feels. But keep reading. The Lord is in his holy temple. He hasn't moved. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. In other words, he sees what's going on and he's testing people even now. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. All the violence that's happening in our culture, God hates it. Upon the wicked, he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Amen. Praise God. Let's go to Mark 11 before I quickly run out of time. <laughs> What's the cure? Well, the cure for a blind and dying nation is to look upon Jesus Christ maybe with some fresh eyes and understand who he is and what he desires from a people. To be governed by biblical principles. It's not wrong for a nation to anchor themselves to biblical principles. That's what God wanted of Israel. That's what our founders wanted of the U.S., at least the bulk of them. And so Jesus is riding in to show us the way. He's riding in to purchase our freedom. And I think we all know, but I'll remind us that freedom isn't free. It's very costly. I was in Israel in 2006, and I was pleasantly surprised to see at our Israel meeting, we're talking about going in March of 2018, if you're interested, we had 57 people express interest in going to Israel. I think it's, the number is climbing, and that's awesome. And when you're in Israel, um, you're seeing all these historic sites, and one of the things you get to do is you get to walk down the road from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, and it's where Jesus made that triumphal entry. And our guide was a uh, second generation, what we call a Zionist. He's not a believer in Jesus, but he's very much a Zionist, very much uh, wanting to see Israel great, served in the military as a general. And he said his father was constantly trying to explain to him what it was like when Israel was not in the land. His dad was part of the early forces that brought freedom uh, and recaptured Jerusalem in 1967. He said, so they would often, as a family, sit at the breakfast table, and his dad would try to impress upon him how magnificent it was that Israel was in the land. And he said, as often as he tried to understand his father's passion, he couldn't really understand it because he didn't personally experience the fight and then finally seeing the nation become a people uh, in 48 and then in 67 recapturing Jerusalem. And see... What I think the problem is in any generation is that the more we move away from what it cost us to get our freedom, the more we forget what we really have. And it seems like cultures, they, they kind of operate this way. 
They go from revolution where they fight and they scratch for freedom and they finally get it and they, and they have to shed blood and they have to uh, do founding principles and they have to work hard and, and people die for future generations to have freedom. And then as generations go on and on, they tend to forget. And one of the things that, that happens is a people forgets their identity. And once you forget your identity as a Christian, as an American, you get yourself in trouble because then you don't know what it is that you believe anymore. This is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about a worldview. If your kids don't know how they should view the world, if they don't know the preciousness of what it means to live in America, if they don't know what it means to be a Christian, if they don't know the value of their, their identity and what it costs people on the battlefield to fight for freedom, whether every war or every battle was right or wrong, I'll leave that to you. But ultimately, people shed their blood for us to be here today. And in earlier generations, people were burned at the stake to make sure we had a Bible in our hands. We rarely hear those stories anymore. We don't talk about the fact that the common man couldn't even have a copy of the scriptures in generations gone by. People died that we could even have a Bible. And see, this is, this is part of what we need to get back to, I think, as parents and grandparents, is to make sure that our, our future generations understand who we are. And so here we go, Mark 11, all of that being introduction. <laughs> so we'll try to tackle this as quickly as we can because much of this is familiar. And as they approached Jerusalem, Mark 11, 1, at Bethpage, now Jesus is moving with a great uh, company of people. And uh, remember, he had just healed blind Bartimaeus outside of Jericho, moving rapidly towards Jerusalem. He's approaching Jerusalem, Mark 11, verse 1. Two uh, healings are in, in the immediate backdrop that are worth mentioning. One is that Jesus has healed blind Bartimaeus, and we just looked at that. The other healing is mentioned in the Gospel of John, chapter 11, and I think we all know what it was. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days, and uh, even in some of the weird Jewish beliefs that the spirit hovered around for three days isn't biblical, but even that belief would have been put to rest by him being in the tomb for four days. And Jesus called into the tomb with a man who had been there some four days, and even one of the sisters expressing concern in the King James best stated, Lord, by this time he stinketh. Are you really going to do this? And Jesus, in those famous words, said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus, who had been dead some four days, came forth in his grave clothes, and he was alive. And I think, as I've told you, that the miracles of Jesus are also parables. They have a deeper message. Uh, it, it might kind of fit with Pastor Mike Rizzi getting stuck in the elevator this morning. There may be a symbolic meaning to that. I don't know. You guys may want to talk to him about that. <laughs> but anyway. But Lazarus was in the tomb and seemingly, for all intents and purposes, it's over. It's done. People don't rise from the dead unless Jesus is around. And maybe the, the message between, behind Lazarus' resurrection or raising and healing of blind Bartimaeus is that I can... Open your eyes, I can breathe life into this nation again if you will only hear my voice. If you will only believe. If you will only open your ears. And what I'm saying to us this morning is that God hasn't changed. And that message does ring through the corridors of time. Will you hear what the Spirit says to the church? He approached Jerusalem, the holy city, and at Bethpage in Bethany. Uh, Bethany means the house of dates. It can mean the house of depression or misery. And uh, this is near the Mount of Olives, and he sent two of his disciples. Just Bible students, Bethpage is a small town just east of Jerusalem. Its name literally means house of unripe figs. Just note that, because that's going to take a very significant uh, connection to a fig tree that Jesus is going to speak to in this account. A fig tree that doesn't produce, and Jesus is going to actually curse the fig tree. So Bethpage, the house of unripe figs. And he said to them, go into the village opposite you, 
Immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one, has yet, no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. This colt was specially set aside for the work of Jesus Christ. And uh, I've commented in the past, but uh, kind of if, if this had a modern face, it might be someone saying to you, uh, the Lord has need of your Mustang right now, so will you release it to me? I don't know what you might do in that situation. You know, can I see a handwritten note? You know, does it have Jesus' signature on it? Anyway, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? (laughs) Jesus anticipates the question. You say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. I just, I've made this application before, but I want to just say it again, that whatever the Lord has need of in your life, would you be willing to release it at a moment's notice? Is there anything too precious to you that you've put above God that you wouldn't let it go even if he asked you to? And they went away and found the colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them. By the way, a side note, this reveals once again Jesus' sovereignty or providence or knowledge. He knows, anticipates what's going to happen. They gave them permission, and they brought the colt to Jesus, put their garments on it, really as padding, and he sat upon it. So Jesus is getting ready now to make this historic ride, and many, there was a big crowd there, they were moving in for the Passover season, verse 8, many spread their garments in the road, and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. The New King James says, many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. This was more like a uh, scene that you would see at the Feast of Tabernacles where they would take a combination called the lulav and they would wave it during the Feast of Tabernacles and they would sing antiphonal praises and that kind of thing. But people recognized that the king had come. And some people were saying, some have commented that maybe people were uh, doing a direct reference to tabernacles because they were saying Jesus is God and he's come to tabernacle among us. So let's, let's do what we do during this holiday. Let's, let's honor him as the coming Messiah or the coming king. And they were laying these uh, myrtle branches and so forth, palm trees in the road, and they were proclaiming him. They were laying their clothes in the road saying, you, our clothes represent us and you have mastery over us. And those who went before and those who followed after were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The word Hosanna has Hebrew origin and it's really from Psalm 118 and it, sa- and it really means save now or save us we pray. So as the people began to proclaim him, they were crying out based upon Psalm 118 and the rabbis knew that Psalm 118 was a messianic psalm. That is, it was a psalm about the coming Messiah. And so they were saying, if we translate it into modern English, save us now. That's what they were saying. Save us, we pray. Save us, O Lord. What a great prayer. What a great proclamation. What a great thing for any generation that is in, in trouble to say to God, to say to Jesus, save us. The first thing you need to do if you want to enter into a relationship with the living God, is you need to say some, some prayer like that. You need to say, Hosanna. Save me, Lord. Please save me now. Please have mercy on me. And they said, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. In the Jewish mind, David was the greatest king. And so one writer has put it this way. This is probably how they did it. The first group said, Hosanna. The second group said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They would go back and forth. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And then the first group would say, Hosanna in the highest. And back and forth they went. And the people were rejoicing and they were celebrating and they were waving the palm branches, laying their clothes down. Jesus is making this triumphal ride. Everybody's excited. Everybody's happy. Everybody's rejoicing. Well, not everybody. Some people were upset. It was the religious leadership who said, Tell the people not to say that. Don't let them laud you as the Messiah. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth. If these are silent, the very what? Stones or rocks will cry out. Some people think that he was referring just just to all the rocks in 
Jerusalem, some people that think that he was referring to the stones of the temple, which is supposed to be his house and a house of prayer for all the nations. In essence, Jesus saying, look, even the stones of the temple are going to cry out. You could take it either way. But Jesus was saying, look, creation's going to cry out if these don't cry out. And he entered Jerusalem, verse 11, and he came into the temple. And after looking all around, he departed for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. Mark's gospel gives us an insight, and it says that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he examined the temple. He looked all around it. What do you think he saw? He saw commerce. He saw the bazaar of Annas in the court of the Gentiles. What is that, Pastor Michael? Well, it was basically a market where they were charging exorbitant prices to people who were trying to buy sacrificial animals for the feast. It was a racket. It was a ripoff. It was all the worst of humanity turning something that was sacred and something that was supposed to honor God and people who were trying to find out more about God and it had become a merchandising area. Become the ugliest of the ugly when, when for, you know, uh, on religious platforms, people start to make merchandise of people. I know that doesn't happen today. And Jesus did his own examination. And I suppose it would be uh, beneficial for us to say that if Jesus came into one of our church services and looked around, maybe if he looked at the heart of our worship, the passion of our evangelism, what would he do? What would he say? On the next day, verse 12, when they had departed from Bethany, he became hungry. Jesus did get hungry, just in case you wondered, he did get hungry. And seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, remember it's springtime, it's Passover time, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. Some say, well, was he looking for edible buds on the tree? I mean, this was not the season for figs. That's what Mark tells us. The fig tree, according to what I've studied, really begins to blossom fruit in, in June. So why did Jesus select this fig tree? And what is the message? He came looking for some fruit on it, but he found nothing. He found no fruit. And many have commented, and I think you've probably heard this before, that the fig tree sometimes in the Bible represents Israel as a nation. And he came and looked for fruit on the tree and found what? Nothing. You know, several times in our Bible, we're told that when gospel preaching happens, it's, it's repentance and faith is preached, but then this should be added. Bring forth deeds in keeping with repentance. You could look at Luke 3, verse 8. You could look at uh, the book of Acts where the Apostle Paul preached just that. When people repented, there was an expectation that fruit would follow repentance. In fact, we might argue that one of the main markers of genuine repentance is fruit that follows because someone can say all day long, I've repented of my sin. But if there's no fruit on the tree, you better go re-examine the root. Amen? If you're planted by streams of water, Psalm chapter 1, you will bear fruit in season. Look, you're not going to be perfect. We know that. But there's going to be a change. There's going to be some fruit in your life. And Jesus looked for fruit, but he found none. Part of his examination was the temple area, and perhaps this tree uh, reflects what he saw in the temple. The tree was in leaf. Perhaps from a distance it looked promising, but there was nothing on it. Now, I would like you to turn to an Old Testament book called the book of Micah. Okay, it's just after Jonah. So if you'd locate that, I'm going to read an Old Testament verse from Hosea, but find the book of Micah. If you have those cheater tabs, it shouldn't be a problem. If you're on an electronic device, it shouldn't be a problem. If you're old school, just uh, cheat and look on with your neighbor. Ask them for a page number. <laughs> Hosea 9 verse 10. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its season, first season. This is Hosea 9:10. But they came to Baal Peor and devoted themselves to shame. And they became as, a detest, as detestable as that which they loved. Now, 
If you've located Micah, you want Micah 7, verse 1. Now, as you do some study on Jesus coming in for his triumphal entry and his examination of the fig tree, many scholars will point you to Micah 7, and they will say, Micah 7 is probably what Jesus has in mind, scripturally speaking, as he approaches this fig tree. Let's read it together. Micah 7, uh, he is a, uh, a man who's prophesying primarily to the southern kingdom, a contemporary of Isaiah. He says, Woe is me, Micah 7, verse 1, for I'm like the fruit pickers and the grape gatherers. There's not a cluster of grapes to eat or a first ripe fig which I crave. The godly person has perished from the land, and there is no upright person among them. Now, here's the connection, and I'll just, I just want to draw the application. We'll come back to the passage. When you look at godly leadership, we can talk about servanthood. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. I believe that's important to look at. We can talk about courage. Jesus knew what he was facing, and he knew that he was going to die, and a leader should be courageous. Joshua's told a number of times in the Old Testament, be strong and what? Courageous. Do not tremble at them, for the Lord God is with you wherever you go. Servitude, a servant's heart, courage. But here's a third principle for leadership, and it's this, righteousness. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. What is righteousness? It's doing the right thing. It's living the right way. And the, the fig tree becomes a picture of a lack of righteousness in the nation. Notice how it follows. It says, The godly person, Micah 7, 2, has perished from the land. There's no upright person among them. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. Concerning evil, both hands do it well. The prince asks also the judge for a bribe. And a great man speaks the desire of his soul. Uh, NIV says, the powerful dictate what they desire, so they weave it together. NIV, they all conspire together. I, I look at the landscape today. I, sometimes I pick up the newspaper and I find out, you know, there's been money laundered from this government agency. This person, you know, says this behind closed doors. This person says this. And, and you start to go, what in the world? Is there any righteous person on this planet? Is everybody cheating? Are all these back room, behind closed doors conversations happening? And what does the Lord think of all this? And I'll tell you what, here's where I find solace. I know that the Lord hears those conversations. I know he sees behind the veil, even when there's a massive confusion and it's hard to figure out the facts. And you watch news reports that vary, you know, from one from another and people have this take and that take and you say, how do you ferret through these things? I don't always know, but I'll tell you this, God knows God sees the corrupt business deals, the corruption in government, and, and we could add a lot of corruption in the church. And here we are. The best of them, verse 4, is like a briar. The most upright, like a thorn hedge. <laughs> Doesn't sound too pleasant. The day when you post a watchman, your punishment will come. Then their confusion will occur. Do not trust in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. Be careful with even the closest around you. For son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That might sound familiar to some of you because Jesus said that was going to happen to the apostles. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. But as for me, I will watch expect expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. I just wrote in my notes here, we need to pray. You know, Micah looked at his generation and he said, oh Lord, the best of them is like a prickly thorn bush. There's no righteousness anywhere. It seems like it's all gone. And look, maybe sometimes these prophets are using hyperbole. Maybe they're broad brushing. And we know that there's some good people in our land but there were times in Israel's history when they looked around and they said, you know what? Is there anybody left that does the right thing anymore? Is there anybody left who is willing to, to take a stand for what's good and right and true? 
There are the few. And the few that do take a stand seem to get themselves in trouble. <laughs> Back to Jeremiah, if you would. Um, there's a few voices in our generation that are trying to stand, but it's becoming more and more difficult to stand for righteousness. They paint you as an idiot. Let's, be, let's just be blunt. You take a stand for righteousness, they want to marginalize you. They, they put a label on you. And that's how they try to brush you aside. Jeremiah 8, verse 12. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they had done? They certainly were not ashamed, Jeremiah 8, 12. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time of their punishment, they shall be brought down, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 8, 13. I will surely snatch, snatch them away, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine, no figs on the tree, and the leaf shall wither. And what I have given them shall pass away. Why are we sitting still? Verse 14. Assemble yourselves. Let us go into the fortified cities. Let us perish there because the Lord our God has doomed us, given us poison water to drink, for we have sinned against the Lord. We waited for peace, but no good came for a time of healing, but behold, terror. Now let's go back to Mark. I know you're all very glad you came to church this morning. But look, let's, let's, let's take the Bible for what it says, and here's the deal. Many times when you read Old Testament books, you're reading settings where God was warning a nation, the nation of Israel primarily in the Old Testament, and it didn't always end well. Sometimes there were big revivals. Sometimes there were times of awakening just when it looked like it was hopeless, but oftentimes it ended very badly. The cure was always the same. It was always a nation who admitted that they needed God and returned to him. You could call it a great awakening, and we need another one. Wouldn't it be refreshing if we watched one of our political leaders walk up to a podium, get on their knees and repent, and lead our nation back to God? Wouldn't that be refreshing? I think that's what we need. And there are, there are people in our world who will laugh at that, say, what good is that going to do? Oh, that will do a lot. So Jesus is at this fig tree, and he sees no fruit on it, Mark 11, verse 14. And he said to it, speaking to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Jesus cursed the fig tree. Now some people say, poor fig tree. What did that fig tree ever do to the Lord? People seem to be more concerned about fig trees than they are about babies in the womb. But that's another discussion. But, you know, some, some critics of the Bible say, this is terrible what Jesus did to that fig tree. Really? It's a fig tree. <laughs> it wasn't producing fruit. But there was mu something much more symbolic happening. The fig tree represents the nation. The earliest commentary uh, found very early in church history, says the fig tree here represents the nation. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and he began to cast out those who were buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. This is a radical statement about Jesus. Isaiah 66, 6 says, a voice of uproar from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord who is rending recompense to his enemies. Isaiah 66, 6. Jesus did some business in the temple, folks. Amen? Can you imagine if you were standing with Jesus and he did this? Would you, would you be going, oh, Jesus, calm down. I mean, Jesus, isn't this a little harsh? Is there a time to turn over tables and to show some righteous indignation? Apparently, Jesus did it. And I don't think there was a lamb around his neck when he was turning over the tables. In fact, other gospel accounts say that he made a whip. You thought Indiana Jones was bad, right? <laughs> and he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. And in essence, he said, you're not coming through here. Stop it. And he began to teach them and say to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a robber's den. Ah. Oh. They would go into the temple, and in Old Testament times, they thought if they were in the temple, no matter what they had done outside of it, they could find sanctuary there. 
And the chief priests and the scribes heard this, and they began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for all the multitude were astonished at his teaching. And whenever evening came, they would go out of the city, verse 20. And as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. This had to bring some questions. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, behold, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it shall be granted him. Now, I'm going to quote verse 24, and then I'll come back and make a comment on the previous verse, and we're done for this morning. Therefore, he says, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they shall be granted to you. Now, if you look at verse 23, it's quite interesting because in verse 23, it doesn't say, say to a mountain. It does not say, say to the mountain. What's your Bible say? Whoever says to this mountain. Now, the area of the temple was called the Temple Mount. It's actually on a mountain. Uh, Mount Moriah, specifically. Sometimes called Mount Zion. And Jesus has just uh, analyzed the temple. He's just commented on a, a fig tree that doesn't produce fruit. Now he says they're stunned by the, the, the fig tree. It's, it's withered from the roots up. It's dead. And they have questions. And the questions in their mind are, are like, what happened? And Jesus says, just have faith. But think of all they're facing right now. He says, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, and I think this could be the temple mount, be taken up and cast into the sea, that could speak of the Dead Sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it shall be granted him. This mountain may speak of the Temple Mount, and the implications are quite staggering, because it may mean that Jesus is praying that Jerusalem dies. And in fact, it will in less than 40 years. It's destroyed. And we cannot deny that Ultimately, God is responsible for what happens to Jerusalem. He judges it. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask believe that you have received them and they shall be granted you. What should our prayer be right now in light of this teaching? How should we pray? Can I take us back to Hosanna? We should pray, O Lord, save us now. O Lord, have mercy on us. Uh, I would strongly encourage you to come back at 2.30 p.m. today and participate in this election forum because I'll tell you this, the evangelical turnout on voting has been very sad. Very sad. In fact, the last couple of elections, as I've looked at the data, say that the elections could have gone differently if the evangelical church would have just risen up. And been a voice. But we largely stay home, oftentimes because, frankly, we're a little confused and we don't know what to do. And I think maybe for us this, uh, this afternoon will be enlightening. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, we want to lift up our nation to you right now. We ask for her by name. We don't know what hour it is, only you know, Lord, but we do look around and we do see a lot of things happening. And while there's reason for optimism always because of who you are and how gracious you are, you're so full of loving kindness. In fact, you're going to die for the very nation that was rejecting you in this biblical account. So we know you're a God of loving kindness and mercy. We know you're going to die for people that were rejecting you, even in that generation. So there's always hope with Jesus. Yet we are at a pivotal, pivotal hour in our nation, Lord, an hour where I believe that you'll be honored if your people will humble themselves and pray and seek your face and look to you and be light, salt and light in this world. Lord, we don't have the answers, but you do. In every generation, the answers are always found in the face of the God who made this world and everything in it. The nations are yours. This nation is yours. And our prayer, I think I, I would be praying on behalf of this entire congregation when I pray that 
Lord, we'd come back to you as a people. We can sit here and point our finger at government leaders or things that happen on Wall Street or whatever, but ultimately, Lord, I think you'd have us look at our own hearts and let it start with us. Um, let, let revival start in my heart, Lord. Let it start in our households, in our marriages. Let us be a generation that sees change because it started in each house that's represented here. Those who may be hearing this message uh, at a later time, I pray it would start with them as well. So, Father, we just want to humble ourselves before you. We ask that you be merciful. We ask that you would guide this nation, and we even want to pray for a miracle because we know you're the God of miracles. And whatever happens with the election, Lord, let us not hinge our hopes on political leaders. That's always a mistake. Let us, let us put our hope in the one who is our hope, Jesus Christ. So we look to you afresh right now, Lord, and if you're here and maybe your heart's heavy and you haven't received Christ as your Savior and Lord, now would be a great time to say, save me now, Lord. Start it, start it with you. Humble yourself under his mighty hand. He will save you. It's something like this. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe you rose from the dead. Pray it if it's you. I turn from my sin and I turn to you. I want to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I don't want to just be a said Christian. I want to be a fruitful Christian. I want to be a servant of you and others. Lord, would you do a work in our midst, do a work in our hearts. We just want to say we love you. We thank you for your word. May you write your word on our hearts. And let me just add that whatever's been of, of, from me that's not profitable for anyone, let people forget it. What's been from you and is profitable and glorifying to you, let us hold on to it. Let it go deep into our souls. Let it bring lasting change in our lives. We love you, Lord. I pray over the precious congregation here at Living Truth. I love them. I thank you for them. They're very precious people. And I know they've been feeling the weight of what's going on in our country. And I pray that our eyes will be on you, not on the circumstances, not on the things we can't control. Let our eyes be on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.